Welcome to the 170th episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. Happy 49th birthday to Chris Martin, one of the greatest bowlers that New Zealand has ever produced, but perhaps more famous as one of the last proper number 11s. With an average of just over two, he was nicknamed the Phantom because he was the ghost that bats. Welcome to the podcast that would love a nickname that cool. So yesterday in, here in Sydney, it was um, 42 degrees, I think. Oh. And a yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty unpleasant. And um, I was talking to a friend today that said that, that he was at a, a kid's birthday party yesterday. Um, and while he was there, he saw this cricket game going on where a group of 11 year olds were out there in the 42 degree heat playing cricket against one another. And he went up to one of the parents and in a kind of non-preachy um, or confrontational way, he said, oh, that's interesting. You know, it's, would, would there be any circumstances under which, you know, the game would consider not going ahead on the basis of it being 42 degrees? And the parent turned to him and said, deadpan, apparently completely seriously, said, um, well, if there's anything in this in this climate change lock, then they're going to have to get used to playing at this heat. So we might as well start them young. So that's what that's 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 the news from Sydney at the moment. That's the Aussie mentality that builds unbeatable world-winning um, cricketers, isn't it? Just so in this episode, um, we are going. Andy's taking us back to 1971 at Newlands, Cape Town. Um, we're going to be reviewing you guys a history, the story of England's black cricketers, a recent, well, a couple of years old, um, Sky three-part Sky documentary that we have been uh, watching. Um, now, Andy, it's not 42 degrees in London, but how are you staying engaged with the uh, the game of cricket? Yeah, it's freezing and Christmas decorations are, are up. Um, and yeah, the English cricket season does seem a very long way off, but I am staying engaged. And it's interesting, isn't it? You do things in the off season that make you think of the summer months. And I, I've taken a particularly dramatic step, which is I've signed up for the very first time as a Middlesex member. Um, so why have I taken the plunge? Last summer, I paid over £150 to watch the second day of the Lord's Ashes test. So this is and were those the priciest tickets? No, well that, you, that's what makes this even scarier. Is yeah. I think that was pretty mid-range for the yeah. day. You know, you could comfortably go to 200 for the day. And while the Ashes is obviously an extreme example, you know, those prices... I guess sadly will not be that unfamiliar to people who've tried to watch Test cricket, particularly at Lords. Um, and I don't regret it. You know, I've never had the chance to see the Ashes in the flesh before. It was a fantastic day, but I can now get a whole season's county membership at Lords for less than double that. And thinking it through and thinking, you know, where I should spend my cricket watching money, that that feels like a better a better deal. And just to clarify, does that get you unlimited access, basically, to the ground for all county games? throughout the throughout the year is it a kind of all you can eat county membership it really it it really is it's great you know every single day of county championship cricket every one day game every t20 shall wish um you know it's pretty good and and obviously a thing that's particularly nice at lords is access to the pavilion so Mm. you know that's Mm. that's not something for, for those of us who sadly are not well connected enough to be likely mcc members in the future you know middlesex membership is a is a sneaky way into the pavilion through the back door um i think there's a little bit about this of of wanting 
wanting to sort of support kind of the right causes as such without uh, that sounds awfully preachy but there you go um the county game always seems to be in some sort of danger but now does feel a particularly good time to support it um middlesex themselves are in really dire financial straits and there'll be others who will have better opinions than me on to what extent that's their fault but there we go they are um so they need the support too and of course, as you've just referenced, you know, part of the plan is to watch a decent amount of cricket. I'm realistic, as we've talked before in this podcast, that as a um, as a dad of a not much more than one year old, I don't know whether I'm going to get you know strictly bang for my buck in terms of am I going to see never that too much. early to start, particularly if it's forty plus degrees. Get her out there; she exactly. needs to get used to it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so you need to train. That, that's the other thing. We need to train as cricket spectators, don't we? Mm. The other thing I really like about the idea of membership, and we'll see to what extent I can actually make this work, is it makes it very easy to pop in for an hour or so's play. And while I did do a little bit of this last year, it always feels a bit more of a commitment when you're sort of paying on the door and you're paying, you always think, oh, I should go for longer, I should today. But actually, if you've got membership, you think, I'll just pop in. So we'll, um, I'll, I'll keep, uh, I'll report to our listeners how, um, how uh, how my experience as a member goes. And we're going to um, be keeping tabs on you on how often you go and working out, therefore, the, the price per hour of cricket that you end up paying at the end of the year yes. to see whether this is a good economic <laughs> investment. But of course, it's not. I say that flippantly because it's not. I, I work with someone who bought a coffee machine and spent their entire time working out how much money they, you know, at what point they recouped it on not buying, you know, co- takeaway coffees. And it kind of kills the joy of it because, as you say, it is more about your investment in the thing that you believe in which is county cricket as much as it is you going along to the to, to the games and the so. hours that you watch the other thing i have to say that i i hadn't mentioned which i had always envisaged membership as something i would get when i retired and there was then a little part of me that was like why 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 wait until i'm retired mm. you know why not have that why not have the nice thing now so um yes we'll 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 see um we'll see how it goes but there you go that's my um my vote of confidence in the county game now away from lords you have been involved in some cricket that sounds every bit as tough and brutal as the high end of the first class game yeah, I had probably, in fact, definitely my most miserable experience on a cricket pitch <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I play for a Sunday side. I've talked about it a bit on, on, on this podcast. Um, a Sunday side where we have this running joke that our best player, our, our highest performing player is our is our shirts because you get a bonus point every time you're all wearing the same shirts. Now this has come back to bite us in the ass because we got so many bonus points from all wearing the same shirts that we actually got promoted up a division. And it turns out that all wearing the same shirts is not necessarily the qualification necessarily necessary to play in the um, Sydney Eastern Suburbs Division 3 um, because it turns out that you actually end up playing against some pretty pretty handy handy cricketers um i generally open open the batting and i'm quite used to and i and i quite enjoy facing the you know the occasional quick usually the bowling's pretty pretty awful but sometimes you get some sadistic person from division one who doesn't have a home life who wants to be a ringer for all of the other leagues and they suddenly end up in division four you know annihilating batting attacks and really enjoying it and that and that's that's kind of quite fun and it happens once every few games but we had this game a couple of weeks ago, now we're in a higher league, where the entire bowling lineup was bowling at a pace that was just slightly faster than I was than I was comfortable with. Um, 
which possibly would have been fine but that combined with the fact that the wicket was a um, we play on kind of concrete wickets with um, astroturf matting over the top Ooh, so sometimes the matting sometimes the matting gets very thin and the ball makes this kind of hollow sound when it when it when it when it um, actually lands on the, on the pitch and it can rear up from kind of just back of a good length and sort of up around up around your you know your head and up around your shoulders so we're playing this game and I have to say, it was just, I've, I've never had a technique against the short ball and it was just miserable because everything was short and well-directed. I've actually got, if we didn't have a family-friendly rating and if I didn't value your friendship, I'd take my shirt off and show you <laughs> the um, bruise that I've got on the back of my um, shoulder, of my on the back oh, of my left shoulder. Oh, it's and it's yellow I, and black and uh, every different shade and you can see the seam on it as well. It's actually quite oh, spectacular. You can actually I'm, see the I'm seam. I'm going to ask fruit. you a very personal question, which is, would you say? So as you say, it's partly about technique, but would mm. you say you were scared? Oh, there were definitely times when I was, um, uh, not overtly, in the sense that my actual greatest. Um, kind of emotion was a feeling of frustration that I wasn't scoring any runs and that I was holding up the rest of the batting attack and it actually got to the extent that I just left deliberately left a straight ball in order to get bowled to let other batsmen in um the great irony was that I ended up top scoring in the innings um <laughs> which goes to say something towards the standard of our, our batting lineup that particular that particular day I think I think I scraped 20 20 odd off about 40 40 balls um there were definitely times where i was thinking oh this isn't particularly enjoyable and that really hurts i don't think i was scared overtly but one telling thing is i ended up kind of backing away to leg quite Mm -hmm. a lot which as anyone who's battered against short well direction bowling you know that that's absolutely fatal because obviously one of the strongest things in your armory is being able to kind of sway to off to let it go down the leg side anything that's kind of slightly down leg but I was just kind of ended up backing into a few into a few balls um so certainly I had this kind of moment where I thought to myself and it's the first time I think on a cricket pitch I've actually thought this where I just thought maybe I just shouldn't be doing this anymore maybe I'm just not mm. I mean I've never been good enough but now maybe I'm just being so utterly found out that I just shouldn't you know I should just totally totally give up um the next week went out hit a 25 ball 50 and I felt absolutely great and I've now forgotten about all of this mostly um but it is interesting the way that um you know when you feel that feeling of inadequacy on a pitch when you it actually gives you a sense of empathy some to an extent I think towards sometimes when players at the highest level must feel actually a similar kind of thing and obviously they have a better skill set to cope with it but there is no lonelier place to be than a batsman that doesn't know how to cope with a bowling attack from the archives it's april the 3rd 1971 and transvaal are playing the rest of south africa this is the story of the one ball walkout so we're at newlands in cape town that famous ground with table mountain towering above it's the end of the South African cricket season and Transvaal have just won the Curry Cup. So this is sort of South Africa's county championship, effectively. This was a season finale and a high-profile selection trial for the, for the national team. We've got some serious stars on show. So Transvaal's Barry Richards and Clive Rice and the rest have Mike Proctor, Vincent van der Beel and Peter Pollock. Transvaal win the toss, choose to bat. 
Barry Richards takes a single off Mike Proctor's opening delivery. Then the two batters and all the fielders walk off the field. So to understand why, we're going to have to go back a couple of years to the Dolivera affair. Now, I know it's a story we've covered before on this podcast, and I'm sure many of our listeners know well, but to briefly recap, England selected Basil Dolivera for their 1968-69 tour of South Africa. The South African authorities then resisted his selection as a player of mixed ethnic background, and the tour was cancelled. South Africa's 1970 tour of England was then also cancelled due to protests. So, we're in early 1971, and the South African Cricket Association are attempting to organise a tour to Australia for later that year. They proposed to include two non-white cricketers, Dick Abed and Owen Williams, in their squad. And on April the 2nd, 1971, so this is a day before this match between Transvaal and the rest, the South African Cricket Association confirm that the government has rejected their proposal, so they cannot include these two non-white cricketers in the squad. Presumably, though, that wouldn't have come as much of a surprise, given that the, you know, Dolivera affair had only been two years before and that apartheid was deeply embedded in the South African system. The idea of sort of running up the flagpole, taking two non-white cricketers on tour seems like a non-starter. Yeah, so clearly at this stage, the Cricket Association were, I guess, trying to see what they could perhaps get away with, as in would two players be acceptable? But I think you're right. I mean, given the, the government's stance over the Dolivera affair, it was clear that there was no there was no margin. It was yes or no. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I learned researching this game is... I hadn't appreciated that split. So I hadn't appreciated that the Cricket Association were trying to do one thing and the government another, you know, that there was that tension between those who ran the game in South Africa and those who ran the country. Um, Mm. So back in Cape Town, as the teams come off the field, and I imagine spectators presumably looked bemused and perhaps a little frustrated, the manager of the rest hands a statement to the South African Cricket Association official at the game it's signed by both teams and it reads, we fully support the South African Cricket Association's application to invite non-whites to tour Australia if they are good enough and further subscribe to merit being the only criterion on the cricket field. Just going back to this question of context, one of the things that I remember from, what was that book that we read about Basil Dolivera relatively recently? I, by which I mean within I, the last 50 episodes <laughs> or something. Anyway, we read quite Peter, a good book. I mean, Peter Oborn has written, it might be just called The Dolivera Affair, actually. I think we read that. We may have read something something else as well. Um, memory escapes. But one of the things that I remember being quite striking in that was the way that the success that the South African authorities had in effectively gagging the players from commenting on, you know, from commenting on apartheid. And a lot of the... Um, uh, kind of PR, I suppose, that that surrounded it was successful internally and internationally because of exactly, well, the part of it that was successful was successful exactly because of that. So this is quite a moment where the players actually have that opportunity to come out and to stage a high-profile intervention and make a statement that directly goes against the official line on this in a way that they probably hadn't been able to do to such an extent previously and the timing you know the fact that it is a day after this decision was made they are very clearly pitching themselves against the government you know there's no ambiguity yep. um, they know what they're doing exactly there's you know it, it's a very it's targeted now i have to mis- confess the first time i read about this incident i misunderstood and i thought that the match ended there after that single delivery 
In fact, a few minutes later, the players return and the game proceeds. Apparently, the players did actually consider forcing an abandonment of the game, but they were persuaded by Charles Fortune, who's a very prominent cricket, South African cricket commentator at the time, that disappointing thousands of spectators would be counterproductive to their aims. One thing I failed to find, which is a shame, actually, is how what the reaction was. You know, I'd be very interested to know, was the mm. crowd uh, frustrated, supportive? You, you imagine it was probably a mix of both, but I, I haven't been able to find anything on that. And and in a way, the crowd's reaction on the day is kind of in, in the sense of if it was in an empty stadium. Actually, what's important is the press's reaction yeah. and the extent yeah. to which this travels, you know, internationally um, beyond the disappointment of the people who have turned up to watch a, you know, watch watch a day's cricket. But they must have, quite apart from disappointment, just been wondering what the hell was going on at this point. I remember back to that moment when, obviously, completely different, but the. Um, Pakistani ball tampering um, Dowell hair thing and there was just that thing of you know when teams don't come out and umpires don't come and everyone goes we have no idea what's happening even in a kind of modern media cycle so back in 1971 there must have been a sense of hang on what's actually going on here the the funny thing about cricket is we obviously create so many uh, assorted reasons for play to stop that you do become mm. slightly immune as a spectator to your life. Why on earth are they walking off now? <laughs> yeah. you're, you're right, yeah. there must yeah, be totally. no... Oh, it's, it's just the lunch break. Off, <laughs> exactly, off the one ball yeah. to schedule the early lunch break for the fun of it because there was bad light. Yeah, there. exactly. Is it, is it bad light at 11 o'clock in sunny Cape Town? But um, So <laughs> it was a brief protest, but still powerful. These are 22 of the best players in the country, all of them white, supporting the Cricket Association against the government in their attempt to pick a team on merit, not race. It's impossible, as ever, looking back at these events, to really know the motives of all involved. But it's probably fair to note that there was likely a mix of principle and self-interest. I've no doubt many were passionate about the cause, and many of these individuals would display that passion in years after by often making uh, unpopular stands at personal cost to themselves. But I think it's also fair to note that some of them had probably started to realise the likely impact of the government's stance on their chances of an international career. You know, mm. they they had seen that yeah, England's so all go. They knew that would happen for others. Um, so there was probably a little element of self-interest too. Mm. Unsurprisingly, the government response was hostile. So Frank Waring, the Minister for Sport, dismissed the protest as merely a gesture for local and particularly overseas consumption. And this comes back to exactly your point about this is really about how this reverberated internationally in the press. And there certainly was overseas consumption with the protest receiving very significant coverage. It didn't, however, and again, perhaps unsurprising, have any impact on the government. They didn't relent. The Australia tour was cancelled and it would be two decades before South Africa played international cricket Mm. again. So I think when we look back to this, I don't think anyone at the time could have quite been aware of the sort of scale of, you know, the sort of wilderness this African international team were going into at this point. I think there would have been huge frustration over the cancellation of another tour, but I think few would have been aware quite how significant this moment was. Yeah, it's interesting because I was about to say, you know, the players must have had a sense that they couldn't have changed anything. You know, this was a huge um, kind of political juggernaut apartheid was a huge political political juggernaut but you but you're right that that very much is with the benefit of hindsight and actually as you say here we're at the beginning of this process and for these players they're really you know getting their heads around what south african cricket is going to be for their careers 
And we always in this podcast, or at least off and on from the archives, will we'll tell you the sort of the tale of the match. And this is a rare example of a match where it feels a bit of an afterthought in the context of, of, what, of everything else going on. It finished as a pretty tame draw. The hundreds for Barry Richardson, Graham Pollock are perhaps reminders of the talent that would then be lost to the international game mostly over the next two decades. There is a nice bit of symmetry in that when South Africa did return to international cricket in 1991, their coach would be a certain Mike Proctor, the man who had bowled the single pre-protest delivery. To the review, and for this episode, we've been watching You Guys Are History, the story of England's black cricketers. This is a mini documentary series that was released in 2021 by Sky. It's presented by Mark Butcher. So Ingham Batu played 71 tests for England and is now, amongst other things, I think he's a musician as well, but he's a pundit um, uh, on the game. It's three short episodes and it seeks to tell the story of England's black cricketers through a mix of interviews and, and archive footage. Toby, what did you think of it? Um, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, I thought, where, where to start? Um, a, f- a few things. Firstly, in a three by 20 minute series, it is hard to do justice to not only, as you said, the history of England's black cricketers, but also the very meaty question that Mark Butcher poses at the very beginning, which is, why are we still in a situation where participation is so low, but also participation is dropping? Um, and so that's the premise from which he kind of sets out. And um, in these three 20-minute episodes, so an hour of TV basically all together, presumably designed originally to be played in lunch breaks or tea breaks or something like that, um, you hear some interesting anecdotes, but I think it never really has time to delve either in great depth into the stories of these players or into that broader um that broader question that the butcher um the butcher poses at the very top having said that one of the things i did really enjoy actually was and although he's kind of quite scripted and he's not great at feeling natural when he's writing reading off a script i did enjoy actually hearing from mark butcher in that um context he's always someone I've kind of idolized ever since that 2001 170 against um against the Aussies which I remember very vividly watching on my grandparents sofa um Mark Butcher has kind of been a bit of an idol for me and there's something that that is really affecting I find about watching someone like that speaking so from the heart about something that is so personal it's funny I remember that innings very well, partly because I think we were children, obviously, of the 90s, where just getting anything over the Aussies oh. at any point was amazing. Um, I, it must have been the first test we won against the Aussies for, I don't know and when. It was, and it was improbable. And brilliant. But he, he's a wonderful host. And you know, I think most importantly of all, he's a good listener. I think so often these hosts get it wrong by having to be front and centre and he sort of gently coaxes mm-hmm. his interviewees he's willing to kind of be in the background I think he's a great host I think he should you know he should be doing more of this um, I completely agree with you on I hadn't thought and I think you've, you're exactly right and I don't know why I hadn't thought of that presumably partly the 20 minute episodes are about how they were first used with Sky as part of test match footage mm. and it's just a little frustrating because so. it's a great subject great interviewees um, I was learning so much, but it all just felt a little bit like we're just getting into something and then we and then we move on. There's a lot not... You do feel like if it was three one-hour 
one hour shows you could probably have got somewhere a bit more interesting yeah yeah with it fundamentally and and, and, and that is that feels like a pity and a missed opportunity and, and i think your head would be spinning less because i think sometimes you were just kind of getting a thread or getting a story and then and then moving on um a big theme that comes up perhaps unsurprisingly is the relationship between england's black cricketers and, and the west indies um and there were some really wonderful moments in this i love um the footage of devon malcolm giving a satisfied crossing of the arms when watching back mm. his dismissal of Viv Richards. Um, and we talk sort of, there are some very moving stories about the experience of those England cricketers who had grown up in the West, in the Caribbean, like yeah. Chris Lewis, um, going back to the West Indies to play for England. Um, I know you were very touched by the sort of the, the Gladstone Small story. Yeah, Gladstone Small, who was someone who I've kind of been aware of. And again, I think a lot of this generation of, so those cricketers from the 80s and early 90s who I kind of know of um, but never watched when they were playing. Um, and so one of the things I really enjoyed actually was hearing directly from some of them. And that's something where would have loved it to have gone a bit deeper. But this beautiful story of Gladstone Small um, going back to the West Indies and seeing his grandfather and putting his England blazer and his England cap on his on his grandfather and he says it's the only time that he ever saw his his grandfather's eyes fill with tears was 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 at that moment and you do you know throughout get this sense of absolutely enormous pride that these players have in playing for um England and therefore kind of an appreciation in conversely for the sting that they would have felt when you know these accusations came that they didn't actually really care about England and they weren't really trying because they actually weren't you know kind of properly English in very large you know very large in, in inverted commas. I mean, cricket since this documentary's come out has had even more of a sort of reckoning with racism that both kind of is and was part of the game. And it, you know the stories here are still shocking. Um, David Lawrence talking about a banana skin left by a teammate outside his hotel room. The, the one that I think mm. stuck with me was Phil DeFreitas talking about receiving death threats from the National Front, which talked yeah. about a sniper at the games and talks about getting ready to bowl and thinking about this sniper. And you think um, the idea that you could sort of go about your business as a player with that in the back of your mind um, was staggering. The Wisdom Cricket Monthly article that is referenced yeah. here um, an article that was written called Is It in the Blood, which exactly as you say was about questioning the commitment of black cricketers playing for England. I had to do a bit of a sort of, about, because you think this is 1995, you know we're not talking, it's yeah, the kind yeah, of thing it's that not all that long well, ago. this is it, it's the kind of thing that if you were telling me it sort of from the 60s or whatever, you'd sort of shake your head but be like okay we're talking about X number of years ago, but it did astonish me that we were talking about, you know, something that happened well within both our lifetimes. And, and also, it doesn't just talk about it in theory. You know, there's the great big picture of Phil DeFratis, you know, kind of attached to that article. So they're kind of making direct accusations against individuals. One of the things you just, just said um, about the, with Phil DeFratis and the death threat from the, from the sniper and the fact that, you know, he was standing making his England, playing at Lords for England, and he wasn't just thinking about how do I use the slope to my advantage to get this bowler out he was thinking oh my god am I going to be shot dead in five minutes um that thing about the kind of additional mental load that you are under being a black player kind of comes across quite strongly and one of the threads was the comparison with um and the context that football provides as well 
and in the third episode um, where they talk about and this is my complete ignorance of football but the England striker who missed the penalty mm-hmm. um, and they talk to Joffre Archer and, and Joffre Archer goes yep I could just like I knew exactly what was going to happen if he missed that and I knew exactly what would happen if he scored and actually when I bowled that last over in the World Cup I knew exactly what would have happened to me if I had if I had screwed that up um, and that real sense you have of that it's not a kind of level playing field in that regard as well all of the things that you're thinking about and you're not just thinking about your performance in the same way as you are if you're you know if you're not if you're not black so Berkshire makes a very interesting decision which is he rounds the, the little mini series off by talking about his pride in playing for England the joy he looked back and I thought mm. it's a very interesting decision because there's a really tricky balance to be struck here by recognizing terrible stories of those involved the need to make sure the game changes so these aren't repeated but also I thought it on balance I thought it was right to finish up beat and say look there were challenges there were horrible experiences but I look back on it with pride and a lot of you know players said the same and I thought I thought it it was a difficult directorial decision to make but I think it it, it was probably the right one Um, I agree Mm. very much with the point you made earlier that there is this tricky question that it sets itself about the decline in the number of black players in the county championship and we get a little bit of an answer because we get talk about the um, disposal of school playing fields among state schools, which I know <laughs> has been covered well elsewhere. But I, I really did think we missed this point about why one community should be more, should have been more affected by that than others. And I, I think that would be the real thing for me that you, you would have liked. Maybe it's a different sort of documentary. You know, maybe it's Mark Butcher going and speaking to schools, speaking to clubs. Maybe it's that. But but I felt uh, I agree with you that that felt tantalizingly not not quite answered. I, I wonder whether it's a different documentary in the same in in the sense too that for Sky in a lunch break, you know, they want something that genuinely engages with this question, and they showed that with I suppose when they aired that. Um, that piece from Michael Holding in 2020 or 2021, whenever it was, um, you know, straight after Black Lives Matter, showed a a desire to engage with this. But I'm not sure that they would necessarily have um, thought that their audience would be up for a kind of root and branch look at the effect of the closure of playing schools on, on the grassroots cricket across the board so it is just as you say it's just like it's just a different piece that they're presumably not not there to do one of the one of the things i did think was was interesting in terms of the um question of of why things aren't better was the interview with mark elaine and the fact that um he as someone who was obviously an incredibly successful captain and then as a coach um said he was just unable to even get interviews for county jobs just didn't didn't happen you know he had one interview for maybe one of the england's women teams beyond that just didn't get any any interviews and he just says there's just not a sense that black people can or do coach you know there's just not a kind of precedent um for for that which i thought was a really interesting comment as well yeah he he i think i'm right in saying has finally got back into the game with um glamorgan but after a as you say a a, a kind of a, a sort of inexplicable time out and also it's the effect it has on other potential coaches as well that Michael Carberry is interviewed and saying that why would I spend the money you know why would mm. I invest in the qualifications um, yeah it, 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 it's the way these things ripple through and one generation looks at the generation above and then makes decisions based on it 
Um, but I think it's a fantastic series. And I would also say we obviously, uh, the role of Sky in cricket is sort of much debated, um, both for good and ill. But, you know, these things, these little mini series are all available on YouTube uh, for free. So, yeah, would uh, would strongly recommend. Although if you're not in the UK, you need to do some slightly naughty business oh, is that right? to get them. Anyway, um, not 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 that anyone in Reverse Web Radio would ever do naughty business with a VPN. Um, that was the 170th episode of Reverse Web Radio. We're not geoblocked. Wherever your friends are in the world, they can get us without naughty business with a VPN. Please do recommend us. <laughs>